Hello and welcome to the Dig a Little Deeper podcast. Mm. Here we go. And today, somewhat of a celebration, I suppose. Yeah. It is. We've been doing this for half a year. Unbelievable. So thank you <laughs> for sticking around. I think we're giving away some, maybe we should give away some free stuff. Yeah. Like some, I don't know, hugs and kisses, maybe? Hugs and kisses. <laughs> free for us. <laughs> free for, free us. for us. Free for you. Free yeah. for everyone. That's it. So, you know, if you're out there and uh, just lean into your Bluetooth speaker, maybe the dashboard, the speaker on the dashboard of your car, uh, take one ear pod out, hold it against your cheek and get ready to receive. Mwah. There's a there's a kiss. There's a digital. <laughs> is a it much? too much? Maybe. Is, much? <laughs> is a digital hug any better? Just stretch your arms out. Imagine you're in this little circle of of life kind of moment. Maybe it's still too much. Maybe a digital high five. Digital Maybe. high five. Yeah, we, we, we'll, we'll do a we'll do a little clap here, and you pretend you received the high five. There, there we go. go. A nice crisp Half one. Half year of podcast celebration. So, thanks everyone. And and you know uh, what it made me think about was. Uh, probably how vulnerable you are when you're putting yourself out in the public space, like any time. Yeah. And I've experienced that for years with preaching, uh, more recently with music and just performing stuff in public. The podcast, you know, whenever you put your content out there, you're sort of uh, revealing a fair bit of yourself. And it's, um, it's pretty intimidating, can be pretty intimidating. And you've really got to determine... To, uh, to keep your confidence up. And I think that's why encouragement can mean so much yeah. when you're doing this stuff. And so we want to give a big shout out today. Shout out. Shout out to Anna, uh, who's a very astute young mum. She's uh, a highly creative businesswoman. And she says it's her favourite podcast. How good's that? That is so good because, I mean, I think Anna would be pretty sharp and the kind of stuff she listens to. And to think that we're near the top of her list. Well, she said at the top of her near list. Near the top of anyone's list. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if we're on anyone's list, full stop. So, hey, there's our half year celebrations yeah. and uh, we need to, I guess, head back to where we're going, mate. That's right. So, hey, well, today we want to jump back into some of the amazing questions that came through Bailey and Courtney's email that they sent through mm. in a little while. Mm. Um, I think there's some really honest and insightful questions yeah. that we see there. Um, and I think just highlights the importance of asking questions. Mm-hmm. We've been doing it a little bit more in our church context recently. Yeah. And, um, it's been amazing to see people kind of go- say things like, I'm so glad that I can ask questions. Yeah. Or I was really afraid to ask this question. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's really important that we reinforce asking questions is a really good thing. Um, so let's jump into the, the two questions I suppose we want to tackle in in this episode, which are kind of similar. One we kind of addressed the other week. Um, the first one is, is other literature or art, etc., inspired the same way that the books of the Bible are, perhaps just to a lesser extent? And I guess if you just follow on that train of thought, mm-hmm. if we believe there is other literature that's inspired the same way, why is not more emphasis placed on reading around the Bible also. So not just reading the Bible, but yeah. reading, I suppose, books that would be in the context of, yeah, you know. more broadly. And uh, and it's not that's not actually a new thought. I, I guess it's probably a thought that uh, tends to only hang around like formal study. So, you know, if you were going to formally study scripture, go to a Bible college, uh, you're definitely going to do some church history. 
you know, you're definitely going to do, well, if, you know, if it's a good course, you're definitely going to do some other historical kind of stuff that gives you a broader context. So reading about, for example, um, Greek culture of the ancient world or reading about the Roman Empire, those kind of things, particularly when it comes to uh, understanding the New Testament context, I mean, that's stuff that you would do, but often it's only sort of talked about in a more formalised study context, and I'm not sure that the average Christian is encouraged always to read that way. Oh, I do wonder if part of that is, if you're going to start somewhere, start with the Bible. Well, that's true. <laughs> start with scripture. <laughs> that, so, hey, and once you're like, yeah, I'm really reading a lot of scripture, great, let's add to that. Yeah, solid <laughs> advice. That, <laughs> that, that's solid. Maybe let's start somewhere. But Yeah, and um, we, look, we did look at the first part of that question, you know, other literature and art. I think we did answer that in a previous episode and, you know, agree with, with uh the proposition that's been put in the question, you know, perhaps to a lesser extent. So maybe, you know, there's other writings that are inspired in the same way that a great song is inspired or a beautiful poem is inspired. We'd say it's inspirational, Mm. maybe not inspired in the sense that, and I'm not sure I got that language really good when we spoke about inspiration, but I think that could be a good way to understand it. Some things are inspirational, so there's certainly something in them that's very appealing, very attractive, that draws you in. Mm. Um, and But when we talk about inspired in this context of the scriptures, then we're really talking about the voice of God to humanity. And... Um, and God's speaking to our hearts, revelation, revealing his character, revealing the nature of man, those elements in Scripture that we believe are uh, or inspirational elements of Scripture that are very, very powerful. So, you know, short answer, yes, other things are inspirational, maybe not inspired like the Bible. Mm. Um, And definitely, you know, we should put, I think, some emphasis on reading around scripture that is really really helpful so by way of getting into that yeah that's what we want to do today yeah and maybe just just a side note there i think yeah putting some more emphasis on it and making it maybe slightly more acceptable i I feel like there's been a bit of a push from like well we don't go near that kind of stuff you know we just read the bible yeah well no it's good to read around it as well well i think in evangelical circles i mean this is only my view from the moon but uh, i know when i first became a believer um it was the mid 80s and Particularly in the circle I got in, it might have been more general, I don't know, but certainly colloquially, um, it really was, there was a lot of sort of Catholic bashing going on, Mm. like, um, uh, you know, some terrible stuff being said about our Catholic brethren, to tell you the truth. And uh, because the Catholic Church has always embraced uh, extra biblical writings as worth reading and even places it within their copies of scripture even if they don't see it as inspired it's grouped with their group books of the bible called the apocrypha uh, this grouping of books non-inspired but helpful for reading so the catholic church was already there but also they do use it for doctrine Okay. So, you know, some of some of the things that are reinforced, like ideas around purgatory or, or different things, and I won't go there because I'm just not well read into that, but my understanding is that it reinforces some of the doctrines that traditionally evangelicals have really struggled to embrace. And so in one sense, I think we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater through fear of, you know, entering into what we perceive as erroneous stuff. Um 
So that's just my, you know, that's the way I think yeah. maybe we've got to where we are with not encouraging people to read extra biblical works that really do appear very biblical because mm. they're talking about the biblical narrative, the same characters often, uh, the mention of God, uh, sometimes in some of the books more so than, than, uh, than books of Scripture. I mean, the book of Esther has got no reference to God in it. Right. Which is really interesting. It doesn't use the word God. Um, whereas Greek Esther, which is one of the apocryphal books, mentions God 50 times. Right. It seems like a more religious book yeah. than actual scripture. Uh, so I think the fear of confusing that may have stopped us in more evangelical circles Protestant yeah. circles from encouraging people to read extra biblical books. Well, let's go there today. Let's talk yeah. about. Would you say apocryphal books? Yeah, let's talk about the yeah the apocryphal books. Is that books. the right way to say <laughs> Yeah, well, look, um, I, and doing that, I'm going to sort of refer to uh, my own apocryphal journaling that I mentioned, I think, in a previous episode where now I'm not journaling on it the way that I do scripture. I mean, when I journal scripture, I'm, I'm listening to hear the voice of God mm. and looking to respond um, and and implement that, you know, this is, uh, I, I trust scripture to give me an accurate revelation of God, of humanity, of the way the world works, and that that informs my worldview. Mm -hmm. When I read the apocryphal books, it, it has been like I would read a Roman history book. That's that's my frame of mind. So I journaled through them as an exercise because I find that's a brilliant way. It's only exegetical. It's an exegetical framework. So when we teach people to journal, we're really teaching them to preach. Mm. You know, so we're going, go to the scripture. What was it saying to the original audience? What do you think it's saying to you? And then let's pray about it. I didn't take it that far with the apocryphal apocryphal books, but I was looking for what was that saying in the original context to the original hearers yeah. and how does that inform my understanding of scripture? Yeah. You know, so instead of it being like a personal guide for my spiritual journey, it was actually informative to the mindset of those who wrote scripture in the times they lived. And can we just, so can we just talk about them for a second? Because, I mean, this is something I'm pretty unfamiliar with, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So apocryphal books, there's books that are not kind of a part of the canon of Scripture and most of them kind of in between Old Testament, New Testament kind of. Yeah. Is that kind of. Yeah, it's these are books that, that um, you know, they're Jewish writings that occurred, uh, you know, during the time of the exile, the silence between the Testaments, 400-year gap between the book of Malachi, the last prophetic or the last book of the, of the Old Testament, last prophetic book, and Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament and the New Testament writings. And so there were these historical works that weren't accepted into the Jewish canon of Scripture mm. that uh, are informative, and I think that's maybe a really good way of seeing them. Yeah, that they can inform us on cultural, uh, the way people thought, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, I've just got to say, too, just as an aside, I was so glad that these guys asked the question. This question was helpful for me because when I thought, well, I'll refer to my own journaling experience through uh, the Apocrypha, I realised I hadn't actually finished it. I've only done like six or seven books. Yeah. And so I'm definitely going to return to it. Um, so, you know, the book names themselves are quite unfamiliar 
to the... Yeah, it's funny because it's laid out like scripture yeah. in that it has chapters and verses. Yes. And and then, but then you, when you hear a reference like what the first one we're going to talk about, Tobit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tobit 1.4, it's yeah. like one. Yeah. You instantly feel a little bit like, uh Well, even the chapter and verse, I think that's why, I think that's why uh, Protestants probably in, at large have been very untrusting because it's almost like it's trying to sell itself as scripture. But, yeah. of course, chapter and verse isn't scripture. It's not inspired at all. Um, it was added in just so that we could find, find things. Stuff, yeah. and, and most ancient writings have it. Like yeah. when, when they redo old works that didn't have these divisions, they put them in so that when you reference them, uh, so, for example, if you're writing a thesis, a scholarly thesis on, on Greek mythology, you want to be able to refer yeah. <laughs> to the book in a way that people can go and check check out what you're saying. So we've got Tobit. Tobit. Well, look, I'm not going to say much about Tobit. My my simple observation of Tobit is it's just a beautiful insight um, into integrity, you know, that, that very human... So it, it was really around what Jewish society valued in the day. And you see Jewish societal values and certainly Jewish piety, you know, the way that they wanted to live their lives in a way that they perceived really honoured God. Yeah. And so, you know, Tobit, look, just read it. It is worth reading. If you, if you know, version is a brilliant resource, the version Bible app, um, and you can go on and and get a hold of that and, and just read it. Don't see it, you know, like inspired scripture. See it as informing your worldview yeah. and informing your understanding of how people thought in the day. Which helps then to see when Jesus is speaking to that culture exactly and kind of right. understanding what that culture is. Yeah, so exactly it, right. I guess do any of the books kind of give us some... I guess direct kind of insight into the character or the nature or like yeah. the image of God. Yeah, I mean, and and I guess this is where we need to be careful that that yeah they do they do speak to the na- nature and character of God, but we're understanding they're not necessarily inspired. So it's kind of like that's how Jewish people saw God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and look, it tracks. It tracks with scripture in places. I think it overlaps. And I think um, a great example I dug out was out of Judith, the book of Judith. So there you go. There's another another unfamiliar name name (laughs) for the average Protestant. Um, And um, one of the verses there, Judith Judith chapter 16, verse 3. Uh, And I'm reading just just by way, you know, before I get into it, from the Good News Bible in Septuagint order. Okay, so it's it's a Catholic edition, and they've um, they've actually ordered the books the same way that they were in the Septuagint. Okay, can you just touch on what the Septuagint is? Oh yeah, um, well the Septuagint Septuagint is a, a Greek language version of the Hebrew Bible, basically. So okay. they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, so that the prominent Greek culture of the day. Um, which we probably need to get into that. And and this verse will bring it up, actually. Um, So the Old Testament translated to the Koine Greek language of the day so that many people in that world at that time who read Greek could read. They had access for the first time to Jewish scripture because they could read it in a language they understood. Wow. and so, you know, this was translated, the Septuagint, uh, somewhere around 3rd or 2nd century BC before Christ. 
Uh, it was done, you know, just for Greek-speaking Jews, uh, I think particularly in Egypt, but it certainly would have applied to to many people in the, the Jewish world. So even Gentile proselyte Jews, people who had converted to Judaism um, but were from Gentile background, Greek-speaking, um, they now had access to Scripture in their own language. Mm. Um, and, of course, for the early Christian church, which... In, you know, within the by the end of the first century was becoming increasingly Gentile. Um, it was absolutely brilliant because they these young Christian converts could read the Old Testament in their language. So you know, for example, in Galatia or somewhere you know somewhere in where it is now modern day Turkey, um, those Gentile peoples had access to Hebrew Scripture right. because it was it was translated. So it's into the Greek. the Greek language version of the Hebrew kind of Old it. Testament. Yeah, that's it. So I'm, okay, I'm, so Judith. Yeah. Sorry, so we got off track. Back yeah, to back Judith. To, back to Judith. But Judith. Good, I think worthwhile point. Yeah, it is. Septuagint uh, added yeah. to word of the day. Well, the Septuagint <laughs> it was was a very powerful tool because all of a sudden, when the New Testament scriptures were written in Greek, we had a complete Bible. Right. We had the Hebrew Bible in Greek. And we had, you know, the Greek-speaking coin language of the day, common language. Uh, so, yeah, we had, a, you know, the opportunity to actually read. Well, we didn't have a New Testament at that time, but to read the writings of the current New Testament leaders that then later became part of the New mm. Testament. And, uh, and also what had already been accepted as, as Old Testament-inspired scripture. So we go back to Judith, and uh, that verse says, the Lord is a warrior who ends war. Now, as soon as I read that, I'm like, okay, I know I'm not reading an inspired book, but boy, that sounds familiar. He rescued me from my pursuers and brought me back to his people's camp. Mm. I just look at that, and I think, if that ain't the gospel in a nutshell, What is it? The Lord is a warrior who ends war. Well, Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, Mm. but he also came to destroy the works of darkness. Yeah. You know, so Jesus himself saying, This hour, the Prince of this world is judged and will be cast down as Jesus is going to the cross. So he's fighting this battle differently. He's not fighting fire with fire. He's not. you know, he's not perpetuating violence. He's actually going to go to the cross and absorb the violence and wrath of the world Mm. to destroy war. Yeah. You know, so this, this Lord, the Lord who's a warrior who ends war, written in this intertestamental, non-inspired book, still sounds pretty true to form to me. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's the whole, you started it, I'll finish it. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of. Exactly. Um, I, I, I just love the way that this um, unfolds, you know, God does not shy from battle. He's actually really good at it, but it's a means to an end. Yeah. You know, so far from being a warmonger, he's sort of like a, you know, you start it, I'll finish it kind of guy. Yeah. That's, that's, that's who God he's, is there. He's the Liam Neeson's character in Take Him where he, like, <laughs> rescues and returns what was stolen and exploited well, kind of. Well, think about that thought. That is actually brilliant. Like, yeah, he rescues and returns what was stolen and exploit it. Mm. Um, and I, I wonder whether it's why, you know, why movies like that, when you talk about, you know, it's a very violent movie, but movies where justice is restored really resonate with us because we, we long to see justice. We want to, and I think we need to understand that, that that's what divine judgment is. 
Divine judgment is about restoring justice, which is something that we all want. You know, anyone's sin or brokenness, no matter how big or small, it always leads to death. Sin always takes away from someone. Mm. And so when we talk about divine judgment, it's always about restoring justice to yeah. people. And certainly that's exactly what you see even in this this verse. And I thought, yeah, well, that does touch on the character of God um, and it does resonate. You know, it's a, it's a different picture. It's a different snapshot. But, gee, I think it it sort of is almost the gospel in a verse at the same time. Yeah. God yeah. brings back what was stolen and violated and restores it. And, wow. That's cool. Yeah. I, can, I can roll with that. Yeah. <laughs> so good. What other, what other kind of insights do we... Uh, well, uh, you know, we were talking before about um, uh, Greek culture and I think this book of Greek Esther, what has been called Greek Esther, uh, it's, it's an interesting book. I mean, there's some detail added into the book. So, of course, there's a Bible book called Esther. Yeah. So don't confuse it. But this is like an add-on to that. So this is like... Um, extra passages that were seeded into Esther. Okay. Okay. And uh, and that's why, you know, we have the book of Esther that we see, right, that's canon of scripture, that's inspired. And then we have this intertestamental book, which gives us a bit more insight into the book. And there's stuff like a dream in it and kinds of things that to me seems superfluous to the meaning of the story. But but then again, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm not well read in enough. There could be stuff in the dream, et cetera, that's in the book where you go, oh, my goodness, Mm. that sheds light on things. I just might not have seen it yet. But one thing's for sure when I read it, it is just really rich with in-between-the-line stuff regarding Esther's relationship with the king and um, even uh, her feelings being a foreign queen. I mean, we gloss over Esther. This this is what this Mm. book did for me. Um, When we read Esther... um, the book of Esther, the inspired book in Scripture. Um, you know, it's she's portrayed as a young Jewish virgin girl who gets put in a beauty contest, um, is chosen as queen, and because of that it gives her the opportunity to save her people from destruction under the evil Haman, you know. so And that is the story. This book, the Greek Esther, gives a really different insight. And again... Not inspired, but it, I think it really does bring out some truths that we can gloss over without this historical context. Um, it's really earthy. First up, the book is really earthy. Um, it reveals just how bad things were for women at that point in history, if you're prepared to actually stop and think about what you're reading. It's a real contrast to like the Hebrew scripture. So the inspired book of Esther it focuses, you know, on her calm bravery, um, whereas Greek Esther really portrays her as desperately unhappy from the time of her arrival right through her marriage. Mm. And we've got to understand that this story of Esther in the Bible is as much about a story about sexual slavery as it is about anything else. Think about it. Um, they are in, they have been ethnically cleansed. Here's the scenario. She's she's in uh, in Babylon, okay, and King Artaxerxes, or is it Persia? 
I probably need to read into that, This the setting of the actual book. But she's in a foreign land. She's an exile. She's been ethnically cleansed. She's been stolen from her nation and carted off into captivity. And they are under a foreign regime being used mm. by that foreign regime um, however they want. And the king basically says, I want a new queen. So go throughout the land and find the prettiest girls and I'm going to pick one. Yeah. There was no sense of I get a say in this. Mm. This is the king wants you, you're really attractive and he's going to uh, give you a year of beauty treatment and you and all the other girls are going to parade yourselves before the king in however manner he shows fit while he and his mates all get roaring drunk, which is when you read the story, that's Mm. what's in the Bible. Mm. So you've got this ungodly evil king who, um, uh, who is using these women mm. as his playthings. And mm. that doesn't really come out in the Bible account yeah. as powerfully as it does in this one because it actually portrays she understands all this is happening against her will. Now, God uses those circumstances, and it comes back to that why do bad things happen to good people? God never creates those bad things, but God uses every circumstance we find ourselves in, even the most painful of them, yeah. sort of to bring something good. And out of the book of Esther, it brings the rescue of the, the whole Jewish nation at that time. I guess it just adds a bit to her humanity, doesn't it? It makes it a bit, little bit less like, oh, she won a beauty competition. What a legend. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, She's so that. good. She must be stoked. We've got to understand these are people desperate to survive. Yeah, One wrong move. And, and that's, the, and and that's why I guess dead. that whole thought of coming to see the king, yeah. you know, where she wasn't asked for. That's right. You know. If he didn't extend his scepter towards her, she was dead. Mm. You know, queen or not. He'd got rid of his last queen because she burnt the toast, basically. Didn't turn up at the feast. You know? Right, so, yeah. So, um, you know, that was the power that these guys exercised, uh, it also speaks to when you read the story like this, when you're reading the Bible, you realise, again, the polyphony of voices. There's different voices in there. Mm. So if, if you went in reading it like, oh, wow, that king is just a wicked, evil king and I don't like what's going on in the Bible, well, actually it's talking about secular stuff mm. in a sacred context. Yeah. And this is the way things were in those days. Yeah. The king's going to have his way. He's going to do what he wants. If he doesn't like you, he can kill you on a whim. Mm. Um, if he wants you as a young woman, he's going to take you whether you want it or not. Mm. And so Esther really lives in fear of a life, having to please a whimsical king. Wow, yeah. <laughs> you know, at the king's mercy, she saw what happened to the previous queen, yeah. banished because she didn't show up to show herself off in front of his mates. Yeah. And she gets banished for it. And who knows what happened to her mm. after that. Um, Esther knows she's walking a tightrope. And funnily enough, Greek Esther brings that out and adds colour and background and between the lines to the biblical story. It's fascinating, hey? Mm. We should keep moving to get through it all. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are we to next? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> One Maccabees. <laughs> One Maccabees. Um I just want to read the first verse. Yeah. And uh, this is another one we could really get stuck on. Um, But uh, first verse, 1 Maccabees, this history begins when Alexander the Great, son of Philip of Macedonia, marched from Macedonia and attacked Darius, king of Persia and Media. Alexander enlarged the Greek empire by defeating Darius and seizing his throne. 
man, that intro is enough to excite me. Mm. Like I, I just look at that and it's like this is world history now that we're talking and known world history, very well-known world history. Alexander the Great is a huge figure in history, um, conquered most of the then-known world by his early 30s and then died. You know, that, so that's Alexander yeah, the Great. Yeah. And, and this all happened between the Testaments yeah. in that 400-year silence, and yet it's so significant in, like, preparing the world for the time of Christ and um, uh, the entrance of the Roman Empire before Christ. So, you know, interesting one myth about... Um, Alexander the Great that I, I love, I've always remembered this, uh, that he died of a broken heart because there were no more worlds left to conquer, which yeah. which actually isn't fully true. I mean, he was making plans to invade... Um, Arabia and... Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was Alexander's life. So he was obviously a pretty major influence on the ancient world, yeah. especially in that time... Some significant things happen between the Old and the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the ramp up to the time of Christ. I mean, Alexander is a massive figure in that. Really, uh, all a lot of empires contributed to it, but both uh, the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire really did set the stage for the gospel and, and give it the opportunity to be spread throughout the then known world. So, for example, you know, Alexander's the reason and his, well, you know, the Greek empire that he created, it's the reason the world had a common language. It's it's the reason, and, and that wasn't totally universal, but, you know, commerce, etc. it mm. was Greek predominantly. So the world had this common communication form, um, had huge cultural influence and so created cultural waypoints that you see then influencing the New Testament writers. So the book of Acts, Greek culture comes up everywhere and some how problematic it was at times for Paul and the and the Jewish believers to embrace the Greeks. And, you know, so Paul has to speak to that. There's no longer Jew and Greek. The, Christ has broken down the wall of division. Well, there was a wall of division and those cultural waypoints crop up and the New Testament writers were quite comfortable with them and would leverage, mm. you know, people's understanding. So, for example, Peter in one of his epistles, uh, when he's trying to, to give an imagination of God's kindness in holding back forces of darkness that would potentially destroy all of humanity. Um, he just lifts a term straight out of Greek mythology, this term Tartarus, which we dealt with in another episode, you know, when we were looking at what the heaven is hell, that mm. episode. But he lifts this Greek term Tartarus, which was the place where the mythologically the Greek gods had chained the Titans, these troublesome monsters who were troubling the earth, and they'd chained them as a judgment, you know, and held them back. And we've got movies like The Wrath of the Titans, you yeah, know. So, yeah. um, but, but Peter lifts that term out and sticks it in the New Testament yeah. and says this is what God has done, you know, the, the true God. Now, not talking about a... A Greek god, so he uses that metaphoric language. So, but what he's saying is the the true God has taken demonic forces, the true enemy of humankind, seeking to destroy it, and chained them in darkness and mm. reserved them for judgment. And so, Greek culture comes into our New Testament, and that's just one example of why we do need, you know, like why it's good to have an understanding and read a little bit broader, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess it sounds like. Looking at these things, maybe it's like the missing pieces of history coming together in a biblical context, even though it might not be 
the biblical record. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. in the biblical context. Yeah. And I think yeah. there's some really cool insights that you're seeing in here, I guess, where you're looking for it, where it's actually helpful and it's like those additional files or it's almost like, you know, when you're reading a Wikipedia page and, and it has the word in blue and you click it on it and then you, yeah, you end up down yeah. a totally different rabbit hole, but sometimes it adds context to what you were reading. Very, very good. And, um, you know, you look at the influence these empires had and of course there's from you know the, the you know there was the kingdom of israel and then obviously the assyrian invasion took half the nation and then the babylonian empire uh the persian empire and we get some of those great stories coming out like daniel and esther etc mm-hmm. etc et um but then you have the greek empire and you know giving the world that common language giving it con common cultural waypoints. Then you have the Roman Empire swallowing up the Greek Empire and Roman Empire, among other things, gives us uh, Paxus Romana or Ro- Roman peace, which wasn't peace at all. It was peace at the edge of a sword um, and Roman roads, so passage around the world. Mm. Um, and so for the first time in human history, as we understand it, Paul was able to travel the then-known world without dying when he went over the next hill because yeah. there was a tribe. You know, the Romans squashed that stuff. You know, they they killed the highwaymen. They destroyed the warlords. They, they paved a way for the gospel to actually move throughout the then-known world with a common language of Koine Greek. And so you... You see, you know, not God creating these circumstances, but God using these layers of human history. Yeah. And this is where I think we can easily say it's it's been well said, you know, history is his story. Yeah. How God has used these events and used, um, you know, massive world events to extend his kingdom, to communicate his goodness to humankind. That's why people like Alexander the Great, again, extra biblical reading, really, really worthwhile because it starts to colour in some of the blanks of the world that Jesus lived in. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's just even interesting to to think of the question, why did Jesus come when he did? And it was like, it was the perfect time, if not the first time (laughs) in human history that that would kind of what happened. Could happen. Could happen, yeah. Yeah, and from crucifixion to the communication of the gospel. Yeah. And maybe there's never been a time like it until now with with the internet right. where the world has been so, you know, reachable yeah. in that sense across cultural, across geographic boundaries, yeah. Yeah, and so I think we're going to look at one more yeah, book yeah. from the... Yeah, this is... This, this is as far as I got in the Apocrypha, and so maybe I shall return presently. But the three holy children, that's definitely a weird sound. Yeah, that sounds, col- that sounds culty. That's <laughs> a bit weird. Um, definitely sounds Catholic. That's what someone um, tries, it sounds like what someone tries to tell you about on the street corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, it's, of course, it's the story of Daniel's three companions uh, from the book of Daniel, Daniel fame. Um, and it's a huge story from that book. It it sets a lot of context, you know, the context of Babylon, the context of Nebuchadnezzar. So, you know, just talking now about the inspired book of Daniel, um, you know, this this fits within that context. It 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 looks at a bit of the story of these three guys who get thrown in the fire. And that's a massive story in the book of Daniel, mm. but like they're not drilled down into, whereas this book drills down into them 
a little bit. So uh, it talks about, um, if we go, just go to the verse, um, O Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, bless ye the Lord, praise and exalt him above all forever, for he hath delivered us from hell and saved us from the hand of death and delivered us out of the midst of the furnace and the burning flame, even out of the midst of the fire, uh, hath he delivered us. And this is the story of these three Jewish guys mm. um, who were thrown in the fire by the evil king. Interesting that they like use their Hebrew names there. I mean, I guess noticed usually when we preach this story, we'd use yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, <laughs> which what, that was their Babylonian Babylonian name? names, it's yeah. It's kind of yeah. like telling a story referring to them by a nickname that they don't particularly like, I suppose. Well, yeah, I can't imagine they would have liked the, the name uh, their captive had given no, them. No, no, you know, this is the name their captives have given them. I think it'd be a bit like It's like, us. oh, Boofhead, he came along <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> it'd probably be like, you know, if you were a great sporting figure, but you, you'd you be nicknamed something that you didn't particularly appreciate. Right. And when they write about one of your great sporting, uh, sporting feats in a newspaper, they use your nickname. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, uh. So we, we unwittingly, I think, often as, as preachers refer to them by those names because to tell you the truth, I, I've got Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego burned in my brain. Yeah. Um, Hananiah. See how long it took yeah. us to learn how to pronounce Hananiah, it. Hananiah, Azariah, and, and uh, Mishael, not quite much, so. Much simpler, though, to be honest. Oh, they are. <laughs> they, they are. The interesting point that I picked up here was that the author sees punishment by fire in the present as synonymous with hell. That's what I found interesting, particularly in light of our discussions recent, recently about hell. And again, non-inspired book. No, but, but this, it's obviously, I guess, Jewish thinking pre-Christ is that hell yeah. is also a present reality. Oh, that's what I think. That's what I think. You know, this is where you can, you know, reading between the lines, there's insight, if nothing else. Yeah, and it's the Jewish mindset, which, you know, this probably was the thinking of Jesus' day. Um, so the author is definitely just tying the fact that the boys are being thrown by an evil king, and that's interesting, into a fire. Mm. Not by a good king, by an evil king. Right. How do we preach yeah. it that yeah. the good king's going to do that? I don't know how we ended up there. So the evil king's throwing the good boys into the fire, but God preserves them from the fire. And the interesting thing being that very real present reality mm. is equated to hell. Yeah. So interesting. So I guess in in short, should we read more broadly we, we should start with scripture, inspired scripture. If you're course. going to read anything, read the Bible. Of but course also, we should. Yep. And, yeah. and look, just before we leave that point, I know we've got to finish, but, um, you know, Jesus using Gehenna. Again, mm. if we just refer back to that earlier episode on what the heaven is hell, Jesus using Gehenna, um, which, you know, the, the literal burning rubbish pit outside of Jerusalem, mm. um, and tying that to a consequence of sin, that when you see that that's overlaid over that Jewish understanding that hell could be a very present, fiery reality right now, I think that just helps you understand even the context of that just so much more powerfully, mm. that he was saying something that in their imaginations and in their worldview, it was already well-established, present, painful reality. Yeah, Judgment hits you now. 
not just some ethereal place possibly in the future. Uh, and I think that's when, so when Jesus starts talking about Gehenna and, and painting fiery images for them, they were already there in their mind, mm. you know, like maybe us later in history or, or Gentile, non-Jewish audience, we have to get our mind around those concepts. Certainly Jesus' audience wouldn't have had to. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So interesting. Well, can you can you summarise it for us? Should well, we be reading broader? We should be reading broader. Um but always keeping in mind the difference between things that are insightful and inspirational and the one thing that's actually inspired, which is the Bible. Hi, it's Steph here. And Kai, thanks so much for listening. And Kai, what should people do if they enjoyed today's podcast? I think a rating and review would be nice. And so, Steph, what are we discussing next week? Next week, we're chatting about something old, something new, plus the value of an argument. That sounds quite entertaining. In the meantime, you can check out the New Hope podcast for preaching from Chris and Levi, or why not enjoy a picnic in the park with some friends? Are you going to bring some crackers and cheese? Yeah, definitely. Might even pick up some chutney. Thanks again, and I hope you have a great week. Bye. Bye. Chutney. <laughs> chutney. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> Such an odd choice there. <laughs>